Again, I'd like to thank you for letting me uh, pontificate um, with y'all each week. This has been a real blessing for me, and uh, I, I enjoy it. So I, I enjoy preaching and getting a chance to share God's Word. Um, I want to start with a question, really, a couple of questions. What kind of man do you want as your pastor? Do you want a man who is after the heart of God and will bring you closer to him, regardless of how uncomfortable it makes you feel at times? Or do you want a pastor who will make you always feel good, nurse all of your issues and problems, and always take care of you first? That's a loaded question. <laughs> do you want a man who is a super organized administrator and can do a number of things very well, or do you want a man who is personally after God first and foremost in his life? He may do a lot well, but his first priority, even above his family, is his relationship with the Savior and with the Father. Remember, uh, Jesus himself said, you know, if, if you love me more than these, you cannot be my disciple. So think about that. Out of that relationship that the pastor has with the Father, all else flows. Paul gives a glimpse of that kind of a man as he coaches Timothy along. Timothy, as I said, was apparently shy. He wasn't outspoken. I think he was probably a soft-spoken man. And Paul wanted him to have his priorities straight, so he goes right at him, if you would, in chapter 2. So today we're going to look at chapter 2. And again, um, I, 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 I was studying this. I, I, I told you I've, I've gone through First uh, Timothy several times, but usually I have like three or four months, and I'm trying to do this all in five weeks. And I feel like I'm in front of a huge mine shaft that's full of all this gold, and I can only pull out a couple of nuggets and sort of show them to you. And there, there's just so much here. I wish we had more time with it. The first thing I want you to see here is prayer should be first and foremost. I'm going to read the first seven verses, and then we'll tackle the second half after this. It says, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior." Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Would you just pray with me for a moment? God, as we open your word, particularly in this uh, little book, we ask that you would just enliven it to us, that you would uh, make it personal to us, and that you would show us what you want us each to do with uh, what is shared here today. Lord, fill us with your spirit and speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Whenever I come to a therefore in Scripture, particularly in Paul's writings, I always ask this simple question. You may have heard this before, but... The question is, what's the therefore, therefore? Remember that. <laughs> because Paul's always 
pointing back to something he said. We've divided it up in chapters. Uh, one man said that whoever divided the scripture up in chapters is riding in a very bumpy coach, and he couldn't see it, so he's just sort of doing like that. But there's, um, there's a reason for what he's saying. Look back in chapter 1, and I didn't have her put this up, but let me read this to you. It says, uh, verse 18, right at the end of the chapter, he says, This charge I commend to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage good warfare. I believe what he's referring back to here is the whole issue of warfare. Therefore, you're involved in a war. You're involved in a spiritual war. It's not a war of you know, guns and fists and all that. It's a spiritual war. And he's saying you're involved in this warfare and you need to catch, you need to be on the front line of it. And the way you're on the front line of it is by prayer. He tells them to have faith and a good conscience. In the next part of that, in verse 19, he says, have faith and a good conscience. Those are the two primary things to make good warfare. First, you have faith in God, in Jesus Christ. But you have to have a good conscience in order to wage warfare because if you don't, Satan himself will jump all over your sins that are unconfessed. I love it that you guys take a moment um, before, your sir, before I preach uh, to confess your sin. It's not specific. I understand that. You all have specific sins you have to deal with. And you should confess those because that gets you ready to hear what God has to say to you. I have to do that as a preacher. If I don't keep myself you know, in short uh, with my sins, I, I won't be effective as a preacher. The reason, uh, uh, the, the main thing that we're about in, in warfare is morality. It's a moral war. We're not in a shooting war. The way Satan goes after us is, is via our morality. And so when we confess our sins, we're opening up God to do whatever he wants to do through us. Now, the, the other side of that is, I want you to think about this, is if Satan can get us to sin, he takes us out of the warfare. He sidelines us, if you would. Because at that point, we, can't, we don't have an open communication with the one who gives us power, the one who is our life. And so we have to be aware that we are in a warfare Prayer is the first thing and the most important thing in your warfare. Paul says, first, therefore I exhort first of all. Before everything else, prayer is ultimately important. Now he's talking to a young pastor and he's trying to exhort him and help him to become the kind of pastor that will eventually be able to take on all of Ephesus, I, I believe, if history, uh, if I remember history correctly. Timothy was an outstanding pastor. But here is this man, and he's saying, you need to make sure prayer is first. That means that prayer should be first in the life of the preacher and in the life of the church. Now, here's my question out of all that. Are you looking for a man of prayer to be your pastor? Most churches, search committees, do not even ask the applicant how their prayer life is. Ask me how I know that. <laughs> I've been interviewed by numerous churches over my 27 years as a pastor. 
I don't believe I've ever had one say, how's your prayer life? In fact, one, one that I served in two years in, in, uh, in Pembroke, Georgia, they began their, um, their interview of me, and they didn't know what they were doing, and so I began to coach them along in the interview. <laughs> they didn't ask me about my theology. They didn't ask me whether I believe the Bible or not. They didn't ask me about my relationship with Christ. And so I began to help them. I ended up being their pastor. And I'm not saying that to pull my string, just be aware. The first thing, first thing Paul says, you need to be a person of prayer. Now he's talking to Timothy, but let me tell you, as a, as a participant in the church, you need to be a person of prayer as well. First, if your prayer life isn't what it should be, work on it. Take time. You got to go after God. You have to decide that he's first in your time period. I don't know if you have a quiet time or not. I'm running off my notes, but you need to have time with God on a regular basis. That's so important. I can't emphasize it enough. And Paul, again, I'm going back, he says, first. First. If that person that you're going to call, that's also you and me, does not have an active prayer life, they're not in the game. They're not waging war. They're not waging heavenly spiritual war. They'll not be able to set heaven loose on the congregation, and they'll fall in the area of morality. Now, I don't mean this harshly, but I've run into this out of 27 years of, of ministry, but pastors lie, they cheat, they steal, they commit immorality and sexual immorality, and I would be willing to bet that if you go back and look into their life, it's because they don't have a time with God on a regular basis. It's a setup. It's a setup. If, if, if Satan can cut you off and keep you from having time with him, believe me, before long, you will fall. Something will happen. It can be any little thing. And then all of a sudden, you're alienated from the one who is the lover of your soul and wants the very best for you. Being a man of prayer does not guarantee that they will not fall, but it does let you know that they're in the right arena of the fight. And by the way, if you do not hold him up in prayer regularly, he may well fall because he's at the point of the spear in the warfare of the church. Prayer is an absolute necessity for spiritual leadership and for all the church. It's first because without it, nothing else spiritually is going to happen. For more than 60 years, the church in America has been nearly powerless in the face of a morally crumbling society. Why? It has basically been a prayerless church across America. A church that prays together stays together. A church that prays together has power. When I first came to Canyon Ferry, we met for prayer every Wednesday night. And I decided we'd keep a, a log of our prayer meetings. So we got this, you know, those big three-ring binders. We got a three-ring binder, and my secretary would come, and she would uh, take notes, and then we would post in that three-ring binder all of our prayer requests. 
over a period of about six or eight months, we had almost the entire binder filled up. It took, I think, a year to fill it actually up. But what was incredible was we had answers to almost all those prayers. At one point in our time of prayer, I got so excited about what God was doing. I, was, I would tell the congregation on Sunday morning, say, you need to come, man. This is amazing. God's answering all these prayers. 27 people showed up at our prayer meeting one night. I was a, beside myself in a small church. That's pretty good, you know. If you get 10% to come, that's amazing. Well, Satan wasn't still, <laughs> and he began to hit on us in different ways. And the end results was we were whittled down to four people. And that went on for like 15 years. We had prayer in our church every Wednesday night the entire time I was pastor. But it was four people. And, and you know what's interesting is, as we whittled down, less and less of the prayers be, were answered. I believe it was because our people weren't all involved and we weren't collectively believing God for what he was going to do. And the end results was is, um, some were answered, some weren't. We became sort of ineffective. I believe that's happened all across the church in America. Fortunately, there are people now putting together national prayer networks, and you may have heard of some of them. If you're not a part of one of those, I would encourage you to be a part of one. I follow a guy named Dutch Sheets and listen to him pray with him. Give him 15 on YouTube. Um, I'm also a member of the inter- uh, what is it? IFA. It's the International Fellowship of, of something. But it's, it's not uh, um, sports. It's prayer. Intercessors for America. That's it. They're outstanding. They print, send me something in pretty much every day. We need to be praying. Prayer is first. Prayer is our lifeline to heaven. Prayer is our hotline to God. Prayer is our actual interactive relationship with God. But most of the church in America today does not pray. Gang, find a man of prayer and then pray with him. Again, a church that prays together stays together. You're in a warfare, whether you realize it or not. The enemy does not want this church to succeed. It doesn't want any church in America to succeed. It doesn't want the truth out there. So find a person who prays. Now, there are three things Paul specifically states in these first seven verses. First is, petitions are to be habitually made. Prayer is to be habitual. That is, it's supposed to be our life breath, one man said. Ian Bounds, years ago, wrote a book called Prayer, Our Life Breath. It is to be made for all people. That word supplications means to make a humble appeal, especially to pray to God. It means to ask earnestly and humbly. It's the action of asking or begging something earnestly or humbly. This is where we get the idea of intense, fervent prayers. Supplications are intense, earnest, humble, realizing that only God can really do anything about our circumstances ultimately. He's in control. And we're in a war. And the one who's trying to destroy us would like to take him out of control. Paul says that we're supposed to make supplications, prayers, and then intercessions. Intercessions is the action of asking or begging 
for something earnestly and humbly. Intercession is standing in the gap for another person or situation. You have lost children, you have lost family members. I hope you're interceding for them daily, regularly. We have never been as morally corrupt as we are right now in our nation. Do you, put, do you pray regularly for our nation? And I don't want to go down this road too far, but Satan is, Jesus describes Satan as a, as a, a liar, a thief, and a murderer. Watch what's going on in our nation. There's a lot of lying going on right now. There's a lot of actual stealing going on right now. He's the God of chaos, if you would. I would say we're a pretty chaotic time. <laughs> we're involved in a war. It's going on right in front of us. You should be standing in the gap for our nation, for our families. Do you want your children to live in a totalitarian state? It's where we're headed. I, I, I hope I'm wrong. <laughs> I'd love to say I'm wrong. But we're headed that way. Are you interceding with the king of the universe for our nation and consequently for our family's future? Paul states that we pray for those in authority so that we can live godly, peaceable, quiet, and I put in prosperous lives. What is the opposite of that if we do not pray? It's at the church's door. And I would, I mean, I would say that to the national church. We're getting what we haven't done. <laughs> Note, God desires all men to be saved. Paul puts that in there. <clears throat> For this is the good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of Him. Now just to poke at you a little bit. I know y'all are um, lean towards Calvinism, and I'm a Calvinist, so just understand what I'm saying here. But um, do you know who will be saved and who will not be saved? None of us do. So consequently, we should all be witnessing and praying for everybody around us. So all your witnessing should be undergirded by prayer. And to be quite frank, I've found that when I don't pray, my witness sort of starts to dry up. God doesn't bring me people. When I pray and ask him, he brings me people. And then I have the, the joy, I think it's a joy, the joyous opportunity to share with them the hope that lies within me. Second thing to see, peace comes by seeking the king of, the, the king of peace. In verse 5, he says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Then Paul states there's only one mediator between God and man, Jesus. Now, isn't Jesus the king of peace? Everybody go like this, please. I want to make sure you're still there with me. <laughs> He's the king of peace. So if we want peace and prosperity and joy and our families to be saved, and our nation to be saved, then Paul is calling us to appeal to the King of Peace, the Lord of all, Jesus. Peace comes by seeking the King of Peace. Do we have peace today in our world? I think we're walking right on the edge of some really serious stuff. And I'm not sure the church is engaged 
something like 92% of all pastors never address anything political that's going on around them. It's hard. People get angry when you start to, I, I know this from experience, from when you say something, but you know what? This book is, is our lifeline. This is our guide. This is where we find out how to rule a nation, how to make things right. It's all in here. Our, our founders uh, uh, split up our government into the judiciary, the legislative, and the executive branch from Isaiah chapter, I think it's 31, verse 22. That comes right out of the scripture. We learn to govern rightly by going to the king of peace who wants peace for all people. First, he wants peace between us and God. Billy Graham wrote a great book called Peace with God. But then he also wants peace this way, peace between us and peace between nations. Nothing good happens when there's war in terms of the, of the, of, of the prosperity of a nation. Third thing to see here is Paul was a preacher of faith and truth. He sort of gives us a bit of his, um, of his testimony. For, in verse 6 he says, Who gave himself a, a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Now he's talking about himself. I got saved. God, God got a hold of me. And then he says, For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul now gives his due to the Savior and states briefly something of his testimony. He himself was appointed by Jesus to be an apostle and a preacher. Now, now think about this for just a moment. I may be going out on a bit of a limb here, but just think about what I'm saying. Paul was directly called by Jesus to be an apostle and a preacher. Paul has directly called and discipled Timothy. Timothy may have had an interaction with God himself about his calling. That happened to me. I, when I got called, there was no question God had called me. It completely interrupted my life. I had plans to be a millionaire by the time I was 30. My father owned a, 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 a prosperous business in Atlanta. And I was, he was grooming me to take it over. And I walked away from all that because the call was so adamant in my life. Think about it this way. If you go to an army recruiter and they're recruited into the U.S. Army, your commander-in-chief is the president. Everybody agree with me? Yeah. Okay. Did the president call you into the army? Not personally. Do you not swear, though, an allegiance to the Constitution and therefore to the president who is, who is assigned as the commander-in-chief of the military? You do, don't you? So, when God, when Paul called Timothy, I'd say that his call was from God. He may have had some kind of encounter with God, but God used Paul. As you look for a pastor, be sure he has a definite call to the pastoral ministry. And get him to explain that to you. That is vital. I knew a pastor down in Idaho, and I, we talked numerous times, and I, I said, you know, tell me about how you decided to become pastor. He says, oh, my mom wanted me to. Oh, yeah. He didn't last very long in the ministry. <laughs> mom is good, but mom is not the call. <laughs> Second thing to see in this passage, and I'm, I broke it down into two main passages. 
is this whole thing about, part, I called it partitions in, church, in God's church for harmony, okay? Now this next section has one of the most stumping passages in all of the New Testament. We're going to hit it here in a second. There are three things to see in this next section. They, this all speaks to the, to a, of a, it all speaks of a countercultural reality that we have basically stepped away from in the church in the West. Paul is basically saying this is the way the church ought to be. What are we doing with it? And anyway, so I want to ask you to do something for me. <laughs> Because this is difficult. At first, can we all agree that God's word is always right? Can we all agree that? Say amen, please. Okay. Second, can we agree that there are some difficult passages that need a lot of study, interpretation, wisdom, and grace to understand? And even then, we'll not all agree. Can we agree with that? Amen. Okay. Third, on the other end, as we look at passages like this one, we will love each other even in our differences. To the end. We, we agree? Because you may not agree with my interpretation of this. And I'm, I've studied this quite a bit, and it's very, it's a difficult passage. <laughs> but we're going to tackle it. So the first part of this, this section is I call this real men pray. Verse 8, Paul says, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Real men pray. Let me say that again. Real men pray. Third time for emphasis. <laughs> Real men pray. And, and, and I'm saying that because most men don't take the time to pray. And I are one. Okay? In fact, he says that real men, as they pray, should lift up holy hands. Have you ever thought about this? When you lift up your hands, what are you doing? You're praising God, right? Everybody say, yeah, please. Come on, I like interaction. <laughs> but when you also raise your hands up, what are you doing? You've just surrendered, haven't you? You know, when the police come to get you, they, they say, hold up your hands. Or the, the guy who comes in your house, he goes, stick them up. <laughs> what are you doing? You've surrendered at that point. When you get down on your knees and pray, can you, can you protect yourself? Can you help yourself off your knees? Unless you're some kind of super athlete, you can't pop up real fast. And I want to tell you, when you're 70, you don't get up fast at all. <laughs> That's why I'm not getting down there right now. <laughs> but what you've done is you've surrendered. When you pray and you lift up holy hands, you're saying, Lord, you are all. I am your servant. I am here to do your bidding. I want to hear your voice. I want, I want to do what you want me to do. I surrender myself to you. Paul says that real men pray and they do it by surrendering themselves to Jesus and walking with him. And, excuse me, women are supposed to do the same thing, but he's pointing out men here. When we lift up holy hands, it's a form of surrender. To God, who is our sovereign, has a plan for our prayers and our lives. When we bow, it is a sign of surrender, as we cannot protect ourselves when we're on our knees. He tells Timothy that real prayer cannot be done in anger or with doubting. 
Have any of you ever tried to pray when you're angry? I have. And it's like, it's like the words just stuck around. You know, and, and I just can't deal with it. And finally, God gets a hold of me, and I have to confess my anger, my doubting at times. Both fear and doubt, or anger and doubting, destroy our faith and make it impossible for God to act on our prayers until we get things right with ourselves and with Him. And again, I go back to what we do at the beginning of the service. I love that. It's a time of confession. You can't really worship unless you're clean before God. You can't pray unless you're clean before God. I go so far as to say you can't really hear God's message unless you're clean before God. 1 John 1, 9, she quoted that. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In the next verse, I can't quote it, but he's saying that this is basically something we need to continue to do. Real prayer, or excuse me. Now, ladies, <laughs> the part you have been waiting for, <laughs> if you've read ahead of this, um, I think it's time to pray and I'm going to leave here. <laughs> this is an interesting section. Let me just read through it. Verse 9, in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. Now, he's still in this whole idea of prayer, so just keep, keep that in mind. That women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and self with self-control. So, uh, <laughs> ladies, let me start this section with a question. What is more important to you, your outward looks and physical beauty or your inner beauty? What's more important to you, the outside or the inside? Now, guys, you have to answer the same question, but Paul's pointing at women right now. God gives here and in several other places guidelines for what is really beautiful. Here he tells us it is not about how you are fixing yourself up to look on the outside. I like and think God likes a woman who takes care of herself, dresses as best she can, fixes up her outer self, but it's not her emphasis. Okay? Ladies, if you want to get mad at me, it's okay. This, I believe this is what God's Word says. The, that outer beauty does not last and is shifting all the time. Put up of Proverbs chapter 31, verse 30 and 31. So, charm is deceitful and beauty is passing. Is God's words correct? Is it? But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Verse, Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. 
You know, I, I, don't, I think God wants to, you to look good. Please don't misunderstand. I, I think Paul would agree with that. In that day and time, a woman who did all that outward stuff, she was, she was being suggestive. But here, I think what he's talking about is you want to make sure this is right, even though this may be wonderful or may not be wonderful. And I don't know about you, but I look for the, what's going on in the heart. I want to see a woman's love for Jesus. That's what attracted me to my wife. I have a, an attractive wife. Some of you know my wife. She's a good-looking woman at 66 years old. But the thing that attracts me to my wife is her love for Jesus. This is a guideline for, excuse me, for women's inner beauty, which lasts for eternity. Inner beauty of the heart and soul is priceless in God's sight. I think Paul here is saying, who are you dressing yourself for? Man's eyes or God's eyes? God looks at the heart. Man looks at the outer self. God is interested in your spiritual well-being and growth. He made you. And he made you to look like, just like you look. So be it. A little makeup, nice jewelry, and the right clothes, and the right shoes might make you look hot on the outside. But you may be dying on the inside. There is an inner beauty that shines through when, women, when a woman tends to her heart for God. I believe this is what Paul's emphasizing here. You're a child. Now listen to me, ladies. Meg, I don't know if you got mad at me right then or not, but let me just think about this. You're a child of the king. Consequently, you're a royal pre princess. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, if you put that up real quick. This is, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Who once were not a people, but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but have now uh, obtained mercy. When I first got saved, um, I was at an Amway convention in Charlotte, North Carolina. I got clean on the inside and out, if you know anything about Amway. But there was a, uh, when I walked in, it was, I was about nine o'clock, I had to drive up from Atlanta, I got in about nine o'clock, and there was a guy at the other end of the, of the stage, his name was Harold Hill, and he was, he had written a book, Living Like a King's Kid, and I'd never heard this up to that point, but he said, you know, you're a child of the king, you're a prince or a princess, and God has something wonderful planned for you. And I believe that regal beauty is from the inside out, not just on the outside. It comes from knowing whose you are and therefore who you are. You're God's princesses. You're queens in the making. Now, <clears throat> this last part here, and I've gone a little over and I apologize, I'm long-winded at times, but you guys, I have fun with you, and I hope you don't, don't mind at times. But um, the last thing to see is relational, godly 
women understand spiritual submission. So in verse 11, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Paul is advocating for order in the church, okay? God is a God of order. The God of this world is a God of disorder, chaos. Paul comes from the position that most women of that time did not know how to read or write. And that's actually a historical fact. They, just were, they were not even taught in the schools of that time. No woman of that time went to school. None were trained as rabbis or priests. He wants good teaching and therefore good learning in the church. Paul advocated women deacons. Look at the end of Romans. Uh, Phoebe was a woman deacon. He also understood God's order in the home. Man is the head of the house. Man is to be a head of the church. This is God's order in the church. He's not stating that a man should be so involved, or he is stating that a man should be so involved with his Bible and his God that he will be a good teacher to his wife. The man should be the head. That's why I think he states that a woman is to learn with all silence and submission. Now, he's not saying that you just are supposed to, when you walk in the church door, you shut up. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying in the order of the service and how we, we, we operate, we're to operate, the woman is supposed to be underneath the head of the man. I don't know, y'all probably struggle with that one. So let me dig my grave a little bit deeper. Um, verses 13 and 14. For Adam was formed first. Now the reason he says a man is to be first is because he takes it from creation. That's his theological basis. Paul is ad advocating for, or, excuse me, he calls on God's creation as his witness to God's order. Adam was formed first, then the woman. If you look at, in Romans 5, 12 to 14, Adam is blamed for sin that led to the fall of all mankind, not Eve, who actually was the first to sin. Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, and now reigns even now, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. So God always, hold man, always holds the man responsible, first, I believe, for the sins of mankind, Adam's fall, then the sins of the family. Man is, is the head via, uh, in Ephesians chapter um, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. It says, Wives, submit to your husbands, your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. God's view that man, God views the man as the head of the family. Now, I realize that many men today are abdicating their role their biblical role in the family and often in the church, but there is no question in my mind from the scripture that this is God's order, for God is a God of order. He has specific order for all creation. So, and I've gone way over. I apologize. Um, I can stop here and actually I get me off the hook. Um, okay, let me finish this. So let me throw this in the mix. We're all in a huge, gigantic warfare that's busting out all around us. Mainly, it's about morality. If Satan can confuse the church about God's order, 
the war is often over before we really get started. He has definitely confused the order of the home, the society, and in many cases, the church. Stick to his word, church. That is what clarifies things, even when they do not seem clear. Take his word at face value and trust him, and you'll be blessed. God's word always wins and always brings blessing. Now, verse 15 is the the really interesting one. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing. So we just leave it there, ladies. Just have babies and you'll be saved. Is that right? (laughs) I hope you don't think so. Anyway, ladies, you're supposed to stay home and stay pregnant and keep the kids and you'll be saved. That is not what this passage or the Bible states. First, there's only one way to be saved. There's only one way to be saved. Paul states it over and over again throughout the New Testament. A person who is only saved by putting their faith in Jesus for salvation. When one understands his sinfulness and his inability to take care of it, he puts his faith in what Christ did for him on the cross. He will be saved. That's the only way to be saved. So what does Paul mean here? Um, In my study, there was at least four different ways that um, you could interpret this, and I'm not going to repeat any of them because none of them made sense to me. My best shot, and this is BG talking, is the following. Paul always speaks out of a deep understanding of the Old Testament. One of the key ideas that weaves its way through the Old Testament is fertility or fruitfulness. Or, or blessing in abundance. When God blessed in the Old Testament, he often, he often would do it by making flocks grow. Think about Jacob. He went into Laban's home with nothing, and he left with like 20,000 animals. Or hearts grow, or growing wealth, or by giving children. He made the children of Israel grow very quickly in Egypt to the point where they were a threat to Pharaoh. He gave Adam the command in Genesis 1.28 to be fruitful and multiply. I don't know if you can put that one up. That's actually the first command to man in Scripture. I went back and looked at that. So my best shot at this is that Paul is stating, what, what Paul is stating was a truth from the Old Testament. That is, the people of God in that time were faithful to God and developed their relationships with God. They would grow via childbirth and would bring or would find a kind of salvation in that as their children saturated the communities of their time. Those who are secular, much like our secular folks today, did not value children and often aborted them or offered them in child sacrifice or abandoned them. That's a historical fact. I'm not sure I am right but I think Paul was alluding to something like this as he wanted the blessing of God on the people of God, and that is often through family, even though he himself was single. Dwayne Lifton, who was um, my past, or, uh, one of my teachers at seminary, um, Oxford graduate, graduate of Dallas Seminary, he said this, a woman will find her greatest satisfaction and meaning in life not in seeking the male role, but in fulfilling God's design for her as wife and mother, with all faith, love, and holiness, with propriety. That's what he says there at the end of the verse. Nevertheless, she will be saved if they continue in faith, love, holiness, with self-sacrifice or self-control. Although Paul's meaning is not totally clear, one thing is clear. 
That is, that each of us needs Christ as our Savior to deal with sin, which we both inherited through our sin nature and that we do because we're all sinners. Only Christ can bring us into right relationship with God by his death on the cross. Have you trusted him as your Savior? I apologize for going over quite so long, but it's a bit of a difficult passage. I hope you'll forgive me. Lord bless you. Thank you.